Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Anthony. I'm one of the pastors here at Real Life. It is great to be with you today, whether you are in the room here at Valley Center. Good morning. Uh, you might be watching from over at our Glendora campus. Good morning, Glendora. I know you're used to seeing me in 3D. Today I am 2D, Pastor Anthony, but you are in good hands, and I hope the morning is going well for you there. If you're watching online, if you're listening to the podcast, it is incredible to be a church that is one church just in so many locations which is really neat. And it's been a fun week here in the life of the church. Yesterday, we had our food pantry here at the Valley Center campus. We fed so many people. Uh, You guys were incredible at showing up and serving and caring for our neighbors well. Thanks for being that kind of a church. Uh, And then last week, uh, on Sunday evening, we had this giant party here at our Valley Center campus to welcome people back to school, to celebrate uh, kind of a new academic year. And there was a BMX tent show and some great food. And I just want to take a moment this morning to say thanks. Thanks for those of you who helped make that event happen. You showed up early, you stayed late, you cooked amazing tacos. Can we just say thank you to those who served and volunteered at that event? Uh, We could not, we literally could not do those things without you. So thanks. Uh, And and if you're visiting us today because someone invited you, or uh, if you invited someone uh, to real life, uh, I want to take a moment and say thanks to you as well. It is not lost on me. It is not lost on us. Uh, The trust you give us when you invite someone in or when you show up after an event, it takes some courage. It takes trust. And and we don't take that lightly. Uh, When we throw big parties, uh, we know that we we throw those to to get to know you, to meet you. Uh, And our hope is that you'd show back up afterwards. And you might know this, like we've We've been around for a while, but if you're new, I'll say it again. I didn't grow up in the church. Like, that was not my experience. I didn't come to faith until later into my teenage years. Uh, I was the first one in my family to decide to follow Jesus. My parents and sisters came after that. And we didn't really know then how to invite other people into church. Like, that was a new thing we had to learn, and it's a little bit scary as you do it. And we didn't have the internet back then. We couldn't just tell people, hey, check out, check out our service online, see if it'd be a good fit. Just kind of threw invitations out there and uh, hoped that when the, your friends finally showed up, it wasn't like a guest pastor that Sunday, right? And it was a, it was a message that wasn't terrible. Those were kind of your, your hopes along the way. And I remember specifically, my dad tells a story of a time when he was working on getting up the courage and then inviting a, a friend to church. My dad was a, a, a prison guard uh, for a little over 30 years before he retired. He was also a, a, a high school football coach. So the circles he ran in, the guys he hung out with, church didn't come up a whole lot. Jesus was not an often uh, topic of conversation. So he had to work hard for those uh, things to happen, for invitations to kind of work their way into conversation. And there was a friend of his that he had been inviting for a while, inviting, inviting, inviting. And uh, that friend, you might know somebody like this, that friend had had just a bad church experience in their life. Um, something in their history when they were younger, like it just didn't rub them right. Like they were, in a, they were in a hard spot with the church. And so that friend just kept telling my dad, no. My dad also found out that his buddy's uh, wife didn't trust churches and just said all the time, all the church wants is your money. That's all they want from you. We're not gonna be 
a part of church, but my dad didn't give up. He just kept asking. And finally, after a long time of asking, his, his buddy said, okay, I'm, I'm going to come this next Sunday with you. Funny story, uh, that friend's wife made him keep his wallet at home because she, really, she was convinced all the church cares about, all the church wants from us, from our family is, is our money. But he showed up. And, you know, as, as stories are told for, for years and, and decades, like parts of the story change along the way. There is part of this story when my dad tells it that always stays the same. Uh, and that's the feeling that he had on that Sunday as the music stopped and he's sitting next to his friend and the message begins. And my dad talks about like the pit he felt in his stomach on that morning when the pastor got up and the sermon was about money. It was a money sermon. I know, I know. Like this is, we have this conversation with him and he, he feels the things you're feeling. He felt the things that you're feeling, right? And of course it was. Of course, it's one of those things. And that's, that's rough. You bank so much relational capital uh, with us and with the church when you invite a friend to gather with us. And it's not lost on us. We've committed as a church to keeping our first-time guests in mind. We started delivering cookies to them. Like, we want to make sure we care for people who are visiting us. When we plan our series of what we're talking about on Sundays, we, we keep those guests in mind. When we're preparing messages like this, uh, we are thinking of them as well. So, so thanks for being the kind of church that trusts us and, and invites friends in on a Sunday morning. Every Sunday, we have people visiting our church for the first time. That's because you invite them. So thank you. And now in a, in a move that would upset my prison guard father, uh, if you were in the room, uh, today's message is actually about money. It's one of those ones. I know, I know I'm the one who gets to say it. So I, I understand the, the feeling, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to apologize. And here's why. If you're visiting us today, if you've been around for a while, you need to know that our church, we talk about money differently than maybe other churches you've been a part of before. Uh, today's sermon might actually not meet the expectations you have for, oh no, here's another one about money. You see, we're wrapping up a series we've been in called Influence. We've been talking about uh, the ways in which God has given you influence in the world around you and, and the ways you can leverage that influence to help others know Jesus's sacrifice and, and love for them. And we would not be good pastors if we went through this whole series and never talked about how you can leverage generosity to influence not just people you know now, but generations to come. And, and there's something we say as a church uh, that you've heard it before. If you stick around, you're going to hear it a hundred more times. That if ever you think we're after your money, if you think that's what this is about, we'd encourage you to, to give charitably to the church next door, to the church down the street from you. We're less concerned with who you give to and what ministry you're supporting. We're more concerned with, are you developing generosity in your life? And the, the Coptic church next door to St. John's, they love every time we talk about money because, you know, we, we really say, give to them if ever you think that that's what we are after. Uh, instead, uh, today, we want to talk about what God is, is hoping to do in your life in terms of generosity, not for our sake, but for yours. And, and we're going to begin today with a story from the Bible that uh, most pastors actually won't go near when it comes to sermons about generosity. Uh, this might be the first and only time you hear a sermon on this passage from the book of Exodus. If you're the kind of person who's tried to read through the Bible before, you might have even gotten to this passage because it's the second book of the Bible. You might have made it this far. 
But chances are you, like many people, just kind of skimmed over it. It's not a spot that you spend a lot of time in. But I want us today to start here because I want to talk about money. I want to talk about generosity differently than you might have heard it talked about before. Uh, But before we jump into today's text, let's take a moment and pray. God, we invite you into this space and we take our expectations and we lay them in front of you and we ask you to speak to us. Uh, God, that you would change our lives and change the world around us through your word today. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our Redeemer. Amen. So like I said, we are in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 36. We're going to jump straight into the text, and then we'll, we'll reverse a little bit because it's right in the middle of a story. But in Exodus 36, starting in verse 1, uh, the author of Exodus writes this. So Bezalel, Ohiliab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So let's rewind for a moment before we go forward, especially because like this comes in in the middle of a sentence, right? In the middle of a story. Uh, There's this man, this leader that God has risen up. His name is Moses. Uh, He has led God's people out of captivity, out of literal slavery and bondage in, in a place called Egypt. You might've heard this story before. This might sound somewhat familiar to you. So Moses has led God's people up out of slavery through the Red Sea. They are now crossing the desert on their way to the land that's been promised to them. They are experiencing freedom for the first time in generations. And God has given his people instructions on how to build a place of worship, how to build the tabernacle. It's, it's kind of like their, their church. And it's with these instructions that Moses is now going to the people to say, hey, we get to worship freely. We get to worship with, without chains of bondage on us. Let's create that space. God has given us instructions. Let's go. And so these guys are going to lead the way in that building project. Verse 2 continues. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Ohiliab and every skilled worker to whom the Lord had given abilities and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order. And they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Could you imagine getting to a point where a church tells their people to stop being so generous Uh, because they've given too much. Imagine the excitement that existed in that community to lead to that outcome, where the leaders would say, stop giving, you've given too much. It's because God had rescued these people from slavery. And on the way out, God had orchestrated it in such a way that they were given riches by their captors as they left. In fact, scripture teaches us that the movement of God was so powerful that there were people in Egypt who were not 
a part of God's people that saw this thing happen and they left with them too and brought their riches along. And it was because of what God had done and the hope for their future generations to know the story of that rescue that God's people gave up their wealth in order to build a new temple. Those riches could have meant generational wealth for them. They could have meant security for that future place they were heading to. Their riches, in so many ways, were what had been owed to them for the suffering and work that they had been a part of. And yet, they gave us a model, a model of investment that stands out in stark contrast from what the world around us would tell us to do. There was no greater thing to invest in than ensuring that God's people had a place to worship so that future generations would know of God's goodness. This wasn't even their permanent temple. And yet they gave so much that Moses had to tell them to stop. Could you imagine that kind of generosity grabbing a hold of your heart? So you fast forward centuries later, 15, 1600 years. Uh, it's still a couple thousand years ago for us though. Uh, and there's this new movement of God that was taking place. There are stories that are written uh, about the accounts of Jesus's life that we find in the gospels that you and I might tend to skip over as well. Now at our church, uh, anytime somebody makes a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, or if they're getting back into church life and they've been gone for a while, we encourage them to read one of the gospel accounts of Jesus's life, to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to familiarize yourself with Jesus's life and his teachings. But there are things that we can miss if we don't pay close attention. And the second text we're going to look at today has something that's, that's easy to gloss over, but it holds great significance for those of us who are considering how God is calling us to leverage our influence for the kingdom that Jesus said is coming near and yet already here. We're skipping ahead to Luke 8. And we're taking a story that began in Exodus and a freedom they began experiencing. We're going to go to Luke chapter 8 and see 15, 1600 years later how that story was playing out when Jesus was here. So in verse 1, Luke writes this, After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, the 12 were with them. And it's common to think of Jesus walking around with his 12 disciples. Like we hear that. Sometimes that's a picture we see. Sometimes they're sitting down sharing a meal together, right? That's kind of the picture we have of Jesus walking around and who he walked around with. But there were others who were there as well. Not all of them get names. Uh, right here, even the 12 are just called the 12, right? Because when you're telling a story, you don't have to throw in names all the time. But what we're about to see is Luke points out some of the names of the people who were there and why we were there. And it should draw our attention that he does that because it's intentional. And in verse two, he writes, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Luke makes a bold move in naming that there were others traveling with Jesus and just calling out and naming the women. You see, in that time and for centuries that would follow, uh, 
women had a lesser place in society than most men. They were hardly allowed access to teaching from rabbis like Jesus, let alone access to co-gendered learning environments. That, that wasn't a thing that really existed outside of Jesus's circle. Yet Jesus brought about a movement that brought love and equality to places in society where it had not been seen before. Sinners and tax collectors were welcomed in. The sick and the outcast were healed. All were welcome in this kingdom that Jesus was talking about. And that news, that good news, that God's love was bigger than anyone had imagined, that was a game changer for those women. And it was that kind of teaching that kind of gathering, that new way of being a part of God's people that was worth investing in. When God's people in Exodus brought too much of their treasure forward to build a place of worship, it was not out of charity. It was an investment in the thing that would change and shape the lives of generations to come. When the women following Jesus supported his work and ministry financially, doing so to the extent that Luke goes on and names them. For us to read their names and follow in their footsteps 2,000 years later, they didn't do so out of charity or guilt. They believed deeply in the investment they were making, and they knew that what Jesus was doing in the world was life-changing. Could you imagine believing so deeply in what God is up to in your community that you'd make such bold moves? There are people today who are making that choice and the world around them is changing because of it. Earlier this year, there are some uh, Jesus followers who have access to a different kind of uh, influence and, and a different amount of resources uh, than, than I can really actually wrap my brain around. They decided they were going to leverage the riches that God had given them for the sake of something greater for themselves. But they wanted to stay anonymous. They refused to have their resources uh, go to support a specific church or a, or a political agenda. Instead, this group of people invested $100 million to launch an advertising campaign to help unchurched and dechurched people hear about Jesus in a way they might not have before. It was creative. It was moving. It caught people off guard. It sought to make Jesus real to a generation who does not know his story. The first commercial actually went out this last March during March Madness as the nation tuned in to watch college basketball. And they saw the commercial you're about to see. Let's take a look. There was this controversial figure. Everywhere he went, people challenged him. They questioned his ideology, trolled him, called him ugly names. But he never took the bait, never raised his voice refused to retaliate because he believed he could change the world by turning the other cheek. That was one of, of many commercials that were produced and, and they, were, they were powerful. But on paper, that kind of an investment does not actually make sense unless you're passionate about it unless you believe that this is your chance to help the next generation know the message of Jesus and God's great love for them, unless you've been set free to live in freedom or experience a deeper community 
than you could have ever imagined. These commercials launched with millions of eyes on them. And billboards have been set up in cities around the country. The social media campaign that started last March continues today. And the families in Exodus who helped build the tabernacle, they started a worship gathering that outlived them by generations. The women who financed the first century church started a movement that continues 2,000 years later. The families who financed the He Gets Us campaign, they're measuring the impact of their influence in a way that goes beyond dollars. The influence of your generosity will last as long as it is deep. And for them, for these families that pooled their assets together to invest in such a significant way, there is no price tag that's too big to reach lost people for Jesus. And it's not about their church. It's about people knowing God's love for them. And I I don't actually know anybody with that kind of wealth, uh, unless I do, and you're just like super low key, well done, good job. And uh, we, we know, like I drive a 2001 Toyota Camry, so I don't have access to that kind of wealth. That's not a, that's not a check I'm writing anytime soon. But I, I did see this incredible thing happen uh, this last summer at a, a family camp that I was attending. Uh, about an hour from here, there's a Christian camp center called Forest Home. Uh, it hosts programs for children and youth and families each summer. And this family camp that they offer, it goes for, for weeks of the summer, a week at a time. Uh, It's an opportunity for people who would typically spend their money on a family vacation to take that vacation together with other Christian families to to go up to a camp and and spend time learning from God's word and worshiping together and figuring out as a family how they're going to follow Jesus better. And each day there's a morning speaker who uses scripture to talk about marriage and parenting and and navigating life. And in the evening, there's another speaker who is compelling and gives incredible sermons that helps you reflect on your life and take next steps. Uh, When I'm up at camp, when they invite me to be up there, I I do neither of those things. Uh, (laughs) Teaching isn't the thing that I'm best at, um, but I do a decent job of sitting with people, and that's, that's what I do. I'm the pastor in residence for the week, and I just, I just pastor people. I sit with them. I listen to their stories. I talk to them. When the speakers get off the stage, I get back up, and I help people debrief our time together, and I'm just with them as they navigate the week. And it was early in the week of camp this year when a woman came up to me after one of the talks with her husband. She had tears in her eyes. She let me know she had decided to follow Jesus for the very first time, which is incredible. And you'd think it was a Christian camp, like she wasn't already there. For years, she'd been going to church with her husband and kind of humoring him along the way, but she was not a believer. But that night, something clicked for her. The Spirit moved in her life in such a way that she felt the reality of God. And she decided to be a Jesus follower, and she came up to me, and she said, so what do I do next? And like I, like I say to people in our congregation who make that decision, I encourage her, read a gospel, read the story of Jesus, familiarize yourself with his life and his teachings, because being a Jesus follower means you're going you're gonna to try to live those things out. And she said, okay, and she and her husband prayed together, and they left. And the next night, because a week-long camp, uh, she, she came back up after the message, and she goes, okay, I finished reading John. She read the whole thing. She read the whole thing all in, in that next day. She said, I finished reading John. I want to get baptized. Can I get baptized? And we were doing baptisms later that week, and I said, absolutely. And we talked through what baptism is, and that's often the next step you take as a Jesus follower is this public proclamation of what God is doing in your life. We talked through all those things. 
she was excited. I think her husband was still pretty speechless. He was trying to figure out what was going on in his wife's life because I don't think he expected this, but he was grateful and they walked away. When day three, she comes up to me, I go, oh, this is, we are now in a rhythm. This is a thing that's gonna happen, right? Uh, and she, she came up afterwards and she had more of like a serious look on her face this time. Uh, and she, she asked me a simple question. She goes, are Christians supposed to tithe? Which is a jump, right? She's gone from, I'm gonna follow Jesus, I'm gonna get baptized. And now she's asking the pastor in residence who's there to be with people, wait, now hold on a second. Are Christians supposed to tithe? And this was a longer conversation. Uh, and I talked with her about how Christians view everything God has given us as a gift from him, and, and it's actually his anyways. Uh, and uh, we talked about how you should use all the things you have, the influence you've been given in your life to help others know God's love. So she got more direct with me and goes, yeah, but isn't a tithe 10% of your income? <laughs> I told her. <laughs> Most Christians actually take a while to, to build up to that. That's not a it's not a, you get into heaven if you do or you don't. Like, it's, it's not one of those things. It's a target to aim for. I started walking her through kind of the tradition behind that number. And she saw me dancing around the question as if we've had conversations, you know, I, I tend to do sometimes. I try to give lots of space and she saw it and she stopped me and she goes, now is this 10% of the net or the gross? Like she was just, she was just going there. So I told her about my, my journey into generosity. I told her that even though the math doesn't really make sense for our family, 80% of my income comes from the church anyways, but we take 10% of everything we bring in as a family. We, we give it back to the church. We walked her through that. And I told her we then as a family look for ways to be generous even beyond that amount. I told her the math isn't what it's about. But the 10% is a number that God's people have used for a long time and we use it as a starting point. So then she said the thing that I think she was thinking the whole time, but she just needed me to get all of my words out first, probably. She probably would have gotten there quicker had I not talked for so long, and she said, I don't think my church would know what to do if I started giving 10% of what I make in a year. She went on to explain in a conservative year, this woman brings in around $350,000. So she asked me directly, should she give $35,000 to her church? So I don't know her church, and I don't know her pastor. I could have asked her to write the check to real life. I didn't. I could have told her to, to give it to the camp center. I didn't do that either. Instead, I just asked her if she trusted her church. Because here's the thing, if she didn't trust her church, like there's just a bigger conversation we need to have. There's, there's bigger things going on. And she told me she did. And with tears in her eyes, she told me she loved her church. That though her church knew that she was not a believer, it was still her church as much as it was her husband's. And they'd welcomed her in and they'd welcomed her children in. They never made her feel like she had to believe anything to belong. And it was in those tears that she then looked at her husband and goes, our church, like, we can do the online giving thing at our church, right? He goes, uh, yeah. She goes, is it, is it on the church app thing on your phone? He said, yeah. So she got his phone from him and opened up the app and I saw her go and type in, a larger amount than I've ever seen somebody type into a mobile giving app for a church. And, and as she hit go on that, friends, the amount of joy I saw in her face as she realized the investment she was making in this thing she cared so deeply about that welcomed her in and loved her and her kids is an incredible amount of joy. And I had questions in my head, like, who has that much just in their bank account? Like, what, what job does this lady have? Like, I had all kinds of questions, but I didn't ask them. I just, you know, kind of cheered her on and let them walk away. 
The next morning at breakfast, she didn't even wait till the evening gathering. The next morning at breakfast, she like beelines it to me. My family hadn't even gotten in to like sit down yet. I just had my cup of coffee waiting to make morning announcements. And she comes to me and she goes, I need you to tell me something. I said, okay. She was last night, like while I was asleep, my company closed a deal that I've been working on for a couple of years. It's bigger than anything I'd ever done before. This next year, I'm probably gonna bring in an extra $100,000. Is that how it works? She wanted to know. She wanted to know if God did that because she tithed and if that is the formula. And I'll tell you today what I told her, that it does not always work that way. It doesn't. God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not a formula to figure out. God is not some sort of animal that we can control and tame. But with that said, do I think that her faith in God increased exponentially that day? Absolutely, I do. I also wonder, like, what did the church do with that money? And like, when she tells the story, do I get to be a part of it? Like, these are all the things I wonder. And like, did her pastor wonder? Like, where did this come from? I, I have so many questions but here's what I know, that it was incredible to watch Jesus influence somebody's life so much that their generosity would then become that influential in just 72 hours. And if you're at the Glendora campus this morning, again, hi, Glendora, you've, you've heard me tell this story. Uh, I try to tell stories like more than once before I'm talking to hundreds of people. And I try to tell them like as soon as they happen, to give myself like less wiggle room afterwards to make the story better. This one I didn't, I didn't have to make better. It was pretty incredible. But Glendora, you've heard this story. And I, I love stories like this because you don't have to embellish it for it to be meaningful. But all these stories that I've told so far are about distant people. And it's easy to make a story about generosity uh, sound good. And, and you might wonder like, but like, is any of this real? Is this a, is this a thing? You, you probably will never meet the Israelites on this side of heaven, right? Who built that first tabernacle and gave so much that Moses had to tell them to stop. You won't on this side of heaven meet those women who financed the first century church. You know their names. You'll know how to find them one day, right? But, but you're not going to get to see them. And this lady that I met at family camp, I didn't tell you her name. So it's, it's hard for you to like fact check that one and figure her out. You're never going to meet Probably those people who spent $100 million on an advertising campaign, right? To launch these commercials and social media campaign. And that's why I wanted to tell you this next story. And we wanted to share it with you. Um, because it's fair to be skeptical of pastors and their stories. I'm skeptical and I'm one of them. But Susan's story, the one you're about to hear, is one that I think you'll be able to relate to. She's not a Bible character, She's not some anonymous person in a pastor's story. She's your neighbor. She goes to church with you. I love Susan and I love her husband. And I think you're gonna appreciate listening in on the conversation she was able to have with Pastor Jim this last week. We recorded it so you could kind of listen in and hear what God has been doing in her life. Let's listen together. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. As you know, we like to share stories from the congregation of people's experience of faith. And today, Susan Vandermolen is here because she shared a story with me recently that was really good. And I wanted you to just kind of share it with everybody else. Okay, well, um, a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about giving in Luke 9, where you talked about the disciples having to feed the 5,000, um, 
and you had us repeat, I only have this much. And when you had us repeat that several times, kind of dawned on me that my husband and I have kind of lived that way for 26 years. So this, for people who weren't there, this was, it was a sermon, and yes. it's a line from the biblical text yes. where they say to Jesus, we've only got five loaves of bread, and we repeat it over and over again, I have only. Yes, that's right. I've said that self, my, to myself many times, that I only have this much, so how can I give? How can I tithe? How can I give money? When we have our own business, we don't have a paycheck. I do real estate, we do estate liquidations, so we don't have a regular paycheck, and how are we gonna make our house payment? How are we gonna pay our bills? So how are we gonna tithe? How are we gonna give to the church? And um, a few years ago, my husband was diagnosed with a serious health problem, and I finally, I said to myself, I've gotta lay it all on the line. I have to give it all to God, everything the money, everything to God. And so I was, um, I felt compelled to give money to the church. And I did. And after that, my, our business started flourishing, even through a pandemic. We became the busiest we've ever been in 26 years. Um, my real estate business took off. And then I got to the point where I couldn't wait to give money. Like once I got a paycheck, I wanted to give money to the church. So you had an experience of, of generosity and then sort of God undergirding that and going, and, and you can trust me with things like that. Yes, exactly. And, but since then the craziness is we've paid off our house, we've paid off our bills, we're in a better place financially. Um, but, but people still are doubting, you know, they say, well, you don't have a retirement. But I kind of look back on what you said. He gives us enough for today, maybe not for tomorrow or the next day, just like the Israelites, but he gives us enough for today. And I feel like I can't really outgive God. God keeps giving and giving. Yeah, and uh, you've heard me tell stories. I know exactly the experience a feeling like I'm supposed to risk more in terms of generosity and sacrifice. And God's not an ATM machine. It's not a, it's not a no. casino where you put money in and you get money out. But, but he really does want us to put everything in his hands and trust him with it. It feels uh, scary because I feel like, wait a minute, um, I don't know if I have enough. But that's how the disciples felt. And all of a sudden they had enough food for 5,000 people. Now, you've had experiences of giving prior to that as well. You, you've yes. supported Compassion Kids because we've had Compassion Sundays where we invite people uh, through an organization called Compassion International to support a child in a developing nation, right? How many of those do you have now? I have three, three now. Yeah. And I pick little girls because I have a lot of boys in my family. And <laughs> balancing it out. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I contacted Compassion. I found a little girl and, and I you know, said I wanted to, to support her. And I had gone online and I had seen her and I clicked on her and then I called them. So now I have three and it's really wonderful and I write to them and they write to me and they're all pretty small, you know, pretty young. But I feel like it's just been a blessing and I know I can do it. And you've heard me say, and the congregation has heard me say, if, uh, if you think I'm fundraising, you can send money to the church down the street, you can give to Compassion International, but you really don't wanna miss the experience of giving. And I know it's a scary thing, especially if you've never done it before, if somebody's 
just new to the world of the church or new to charitable giving, uh, it can be an intimidating thing. Um, what, I, you know, I've, I've had the chance to stand up front. What would you say to somebody who's considering it for the first time? Well, if you're asking yourself, I only have this much, don't ask yourself that because you have everything to give. And you can start out giving of yourself as a start. You could start doing that, you know, volunteering, giving of yourself, and thinking of that as a tithe in a way. And then after that, maybe giving a little bit, like an offering, and then kind of build up to so it. incrementally mm -hmm. step into it, yeah. Yeah, that's wise. Well, I just wanted you to see uh, Susan's experience of living a life of faith and stepping incrementally further into that and experiencing God's blessings along the way because it's my hope as your pastor that you would pursue God wholeheartedly uh, and find out how great it is to trust Him. Uh, that is what the life of faith is all about. So thanks for listening in today. God bless you all. Now for most people, Influential generosity is a journey and not something that just develops overnight. That's Susan's story, and it's my story, and it might be yours. Often, we begin our story just by being charitable, and that might be where you're at today. That might actually be the next step you get to take. And if your first step into generosity is being charitable, maybe you could consider sponsoring a child through Compassion International like Susan did. If you visit reallife.la slash compassion, uh, you'll see a list of kids who all need a sponsor. They're on our website right now with their pictures, and you can sponsor them. You can step into generosity in that way and influence their life and their community's lives. It's $38 a month. And for $38 a month, you can ensure that the child you choose has access to education and nutrition and health care and Christ-centered spiritual guidance. It's less than $500 a year. It might not be much to you, but it would mean the world to them and the community they live in. And you might be in a place where you're moving from charitable giving into being generous. And not everyone can flip a switch and just start giving 10% of everything they have to the local church. You might be somewhere between that number and $38 a month. And it's worth considering what being more generous means for you. You heard the shift that happened in Susan's life when she made that decision. Imagine a world in which you're more excited to give your money away with each paycheck. We don't want you to increase your giving for our church's sake. We just know the joy that exists on the other side of a generous life and we want you to experience that kind of living. And once you've learned to live generously, it becomes an adventure to see how sacrificial you can be in your giving. When you look at everything you have as assets that God has given you to influence the world around you in Jesus's name, you'll begin to experience less stress related to money. You'll experience more joy than you can imagine. And if you're visiting today and the first sermon you heard at our church is about money, uh, and it was given by someone who's not the senior pastor. I, I want you to hear this. We talk about money differently at this church because talking about money doesn't stress us out. We believe the same thing for our church that we believe about our lives. Everything we have is God's and God will provide the resources for the life that we're called to live together. So if you're ready to live that life, the life that God has for you, consider what it looks like for you to be influentially 
generous. Jesus calls us to care for others above ourselves. And may our generosity reflect that calling. Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that you'd release worry from our lives and that you'd bring joy in. And God, that that journey towards joy would involve you making us more generous to the people you've put in our lives. Uh, God, we thank you for everything you've given us. Give us the courage to now use it to influence the world in your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have a great rest of your day. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.